This is Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Matt Pennington, who heads up RFA's Southeast Asian Services. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, thanks, Paul, and I'm glad to be on the podcast again. It means it's the end of another busy week. Indeed, the weeks run into each other. Before Matt takes us to some startling developments in the South China Sea, revealed by exclusive reporting by RFA, I'll be discussing politics at the rooftop of the world, where Tibet's exile community voted in a new leader for the next five years. Thanks, Paul. China's assertive behavior in the South China Sea is never far from the headlines, at least in Asia. In recent weeks, there's been a torrent of reaction to more than 200 Chinese vessels that loitered close to Whitsun Reef, fueling fears that China might occupy the Philippine-claimed feature as it did with Scarborough Shoal back in 2012. Zach Haver has done a series of investigative stories for RFA that go beyond those headlines and examine the nuts and bolts of what China does in the South China Sea. He is focused in particular on activities emanating from Sancha City, which is based on Woody Island in the Paracel Island chain. It is the administrative hub for China's claims across the South China Sea, which span 2 million square kilometers and are contested, as we all know, by other governments. In this latest story, Zhang focused on how Sancha City is acquiring foreign technology used for a variety of purposes. That includes parts of an unmanned patrol boat and equipment that could counter eavesdropping on China's communications. It will probably surprise most readers that a good deal of this technology originates from US companies. I'm joined by Zach, who can tell us more about his in-depth reporting. Welcome, Zach. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about the story. Sure thing. So I've given everyone a, a taste at the top, but can you describe in a nutshell what you learned in this reporting project into Sancher City's acquisition of foreign technology? I mean, are there many foreign companies involved? Sure. So what I found is that over the last couple of years, the uh, city has acquired over 930,000 uh, US dollars of hardware, equipment, software, and materials from foreign companies in the US, Sweden, Austria, Italy, the UK, Japan, and Taiwan, 25 companies in particular. This could just be the tip of the iceberg uh, because this was based off of just a handful of procurement documents, but every year the city turns out hundreds and hundreds of such documents. So there could be far more uh, technology transfer than what I uncovered. So you've been accessing procurement documents. I mean, how long have you been delving into this? It sounds like quite a, a tricky task to unearth this kind of information. I've been looking into this sort of thing for years, but for uh, this particular foreign technology transfer, I've been digging into it. Actually, just started right before I joined Radio Free Asia in January. I started in late December. And so I've been working on this for the last couple months. Okay. Now, in the story, you go into some details about the kind of applications this foreign technology has. First of all, can you tell us about the unmanned patrol boat that I um, mentioned at the top? One of the more interesting application areas of this technology that I found was an unmanned patrol boat, an unmanned uh, surface vehicle, a USV, 
uh, called the L30 or the Lookout. It was developed by a uh, private Chinese company called Yunjo, and it's about seven and a half meters long. It can sail for a couple hundred nautical miles at a time, can navigate autonomously or with a human crew, and importantly, it can either mount a uh, automatic weapon station or a precision missile launcher that can hit targets up to a few kilometers away. And this platform was developed in cooperation with a Chinese defense research institute that's tied to one of their state-owned shipbuilding companies. And this research institute has actually been slapped with export restrictions by the U.S. government for acquiring foreign technology from the United States on behalf of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. And as luck would have it, I found that the version of this unmanned surface vehicle that was ordered by Sancha City includes at least four pieces of foreign technology. AIS transponder, which is, uh, helps it broadcast its location, and a weather monitoring device, two drives, and two diesel engines. And these were from uh, three U.S. companies and an Austrian company. And I could even uh, verify some of this foreign technology by looking at pictures of this vehicle from Defense Industry Expos, where you can see the foreign company's logo on some of the components. So that was quite interesting to find because this vehicle will be used by Sancho City's Coast Guard, its local Coast Guard force, to uh, monitor and patrol the, the waters and islands claimed by China and potentially monitor and intercept foreign vessels. Which agency on Sancho would be using this kind of vessel? So it is specifically procured by what they call their comprehensive law enforcement force, which is an amalgamation of several pre-existing maritime law enforcement forces, such as fisheries, surveillance, and other entities that were kind of all wrapped up into one force. This is kind of the local version of the China Coast Guard. And in fact, it works very closely with the China Coast Guard. It does joint operations, it does training with them, it has integrated communications with them, and it also has very close ties and operational relationships with the Chinese People's Liberation Army and the uh, maritime militia forces that are operating in the South China Sea. Okay, so it's nominally for use by a civilian agency, but it's one that's got links to the military. Exactly. In Sancha City, they have a uh, what they call a joint defense system, which integrates their military, civilian law enforcement, and the, the paramilitary maritime militia all under one roof in terms of their operational command. And that's all overseen by the local PLA uh, presence, as well as the city's uh, political leadership. Okay. Now, you also write about the acquisition of some U.S. communication security equipment, and that certainly raised my eyebrows when I learned about it. What is this equipment, and what could it potentially be used for? I found the city contracting out the, the procurement of a uh, what's called a DPA-7000 Talon Telephone and Line Analyzer from the U.S. company Research Electronics International. What this device can do is rapidly and reliably detect illicit tampering and security vulnerabilities on digital and analog phone systems. And that specifically includes analyzing for faults and security breaches. So what this really is, is a counterintelligence device that can be used to monitor your own 
communications to see if there are any vulnerabilities that would allow uh, a foreign adversary to be listening in on what you're saying or potentially even catch them listening in on you. And it's notable that this device was acquired by the city's Chinese Communist Party committee because this is the highest leadership body in the city. It has uh, overlapping personnel with the city's People's Liberation Army garrison. And as I mentioned earlier, it directly oversees the defense of China's claims and appears to be uh, involved in overseeing the military and militia and law enforcement operations in the city's jurisdiction. Okay. So what kind of adversaries might China be anxious about that could be listening into its communications? Mostly the, the United States. Uh, the U.S. operates a number of intelligence and reconnaissance platforms in the South China Sea, both platforms that operate on the water, such as ships uh, that kind of look at what's going on underneath the water, as well as uh, aircraft that collect a, a range of data. And some of these aircraft that the U.S. operates are signals intelligence aircraft that could likely try and listen in on these sorts of conversations that they're having on islands uh, in the South China Sea if, if they're talking via electronic means. So on the face of it, this device that's been acquired by Sanchez City could actually be used to foil U.S. intelligence. Precisely. It was a, a little ironic it, because this, this device in particular, I looked into the contracting records of the company that produces it and sells it, Research Electronics International. And according to the records that I found, this device and kind of the updated version of it that has the same basic capabilities has been sold to the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, and quite interestingly, the Coast Guard Counterintelligence Service. So this very much looks like a device that's being used by the U.S. military, and U.S. military counterintelligence, and it also is being used by their uh, Chinese counterparts. So, I mean, the obvious question is why is the U.S. government allowing the transfer of this kind of technology? Doesn't this violate any export controls? That's a, a complicated question. For most of the items that I found, they would appear to fall below the export controls threshold. They're just not quite sensitive enough to warrant strict uh, controls on who they're sold to. And e even beyond that, this is a notoriously difficult area to effectively enforce policy because the, the Chinese system is very opaque and a lot of the investigations and due diligence that has to be done before these sales that burden falls on the companies themselves, as far as I'm aware. And so if the company does not hire a good due diligence investigator, or if China is using any kind of extra legal or even illicit means to uh, divert the technology to the correct users, then it can be very difficult to effectively enforce this. Specifically in the case of the DPA 7000 Talon device, the, the counter surveillance device. That is the only one that I found in this particular investigation that would appear to be covered by US export controls, though the specific regulations have changed a couple times in recent years, so it's a little iffy on where exactly it stands right now. 
But I reached out to the company uh, about this and they told me that they have no records of Sasha City or the company that sold the device, kind of the Chinese middleman that sold the device to Sasha City. And they said that all of their sales are done in compliance with uh, relevant laws and regulations. So if that's accurate, that means the city probably got this technology through illicit means, which is quite worrying. Okay, which is all of great concern, I would think, to people in the US government who are concerned about China's activities in the South China Sea. Zach, thank you very much for describing your reporting to us. It was a great scoop. Thank you, I appreciate it. On April 11th, more than 83,000 Tibetans living in 26 countries around the world went to the polls to vote for the Shikyong, the leader of Tibet's government in exile. Today, we'll be talking to Kaldan Lodui, the director of RFA's Tibetan service, about the election and the outcome and the challenges faced by the presumed winner, Pempa Tsering, former speaker of Tibet's exile parliament. Thank you for making time for us, Kaldan. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Well, 26 countries around the world, places like Russia, Canada, Nepal, what was it like to cover this election, especially during a pandemic? Paul, as you have said, a Tibetan election is not just take, took place in one country and under one sort of system, but it happened in 26 different countries with all these different polling stations, etc. So it's, it's a dynamic setup. Covering is always complicated, and the pandemic time coverage even made us more challenging. You know, some of our important reporters in Dharamsala got tested for COVID-19 two days before the election. Uh, nevertheless, we were able to cover very extensively. We have conducted about 15 rounds of debates with different candidates standing for parliament as well as uh, the two Sikkim candidates. So it's been difficult yet very fulfilling. Yeah, and you really did give textbook coverage to this with the polls and everything, and it turned out to be pretty accurate what you were saying. So congratulations on that. What I want to ask first is, how well known is Pempatsering uh, inside Tibet and around the world? Pempatsering is very well known. You know, he was member of Tibetan exile parliament for a long time. He was uh, also the speaker of Tibetan exile parliament. The exile parliamentarian uh, sessions are broadcast uh, all over the world, and many people are aware of who he is. Not only that, he also ran for Sikyong in 2016 with the incumbent uh, Sikyong Lopsan Sange. When he lost election in 2016, he was appointed the representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Washington, D.C. So he is well-known uh, Tibetan politician. Great. And is that what powered him to victory? No, I think there are different reasons for this. The most important thing is, in 2016, the election was very tight between the incumbent, uh, Sikyong uh, Lopsan Sange, and Pempatsering himself. And Pempatsering uh, lost that election, and he became a formidable a challenger to the new uh, candidate, Kedor or Gesang Dorje. And people decided to give him uh, the chance. You know, the vote was very close in a sense, you know, the difference between Pempasering and Kedro was only about 5,467 according to RFA's uh, number. So the people wanted to give Pempasering a chance to serve as Sikyong for the next five years. Now, China doesn't like to have a lot to do with the Sikyong, but has he ever 
had any encounters with China in meetings or some of these side talks that they try to have every once in a while? Or has China ever attacked him or slandered him in the state media? Not that I recall, but this is now yet to happen. I'm sure uh, China will make statements about Gambatsing when he once he takes office because one thing that I'm certain Gambatsing would uphold the middle path, middle way approach uh, wholeheartedly and will follow that wholeheartedly. And he will also have outreach policies to the Western world where uh, China will be very unhappy when doing that. So I, I'm sure sooner or later they will criticize. But during this election cycle, no, the Chinese government did not name Pampasering to criticize. I noticed in his remarks to RFA last week after his election was called, now granted it won't be declared for another month until mid-May, but he, he mentioned a couple of things that he part of his job is the well-being of the Tibetans around the world, but also he reminded us that the 6 million, 6.2 million Tibetans inside China cannot vote. So I want to ask you for starters, what are the biggest challenges of, of a man in his position uh, going forward, even without the coronavirus raging in India, where many of the Tibetans live? There's a lot of challenges facing him. The Dalai Lama himself is getting older. China's position seems to be getting harder as it gets more confident in its global power. So in your mind, what, what does he have to do to succeed in these five years? Everything what you have raised are legitimate. Next five years are going to be critical for the Tibetan issue as well as the exile Tibetan situation based on many things, of course, the age of his holiness, and Chinese constant changing maneuver uh, in terms of uh, suppressing Tibetans. The next leader, Xi uh, Jinping, will have tremendous challenges. One, how to balance the voicing uh, for the uh, voiceless Tibetans inside Tibet internationally. At the same time, how to start a dialogue with the Chinese uh, officials. How can they actually secure the religious freedom in Tibet without overstepping the cornerstone of the hopefulness to start a dialogue, whether he should focus on the Tibetan exile or now he should focus more on ever-increasing Tibetan population around the world. So until a few years ago, the majority of Tibetans live in India uh, and Nepal. Now, it seems in the next few years or next five years, the majority of the Tibetans in exile will be living in the West, uh, United States, Europe and Canada, etc. So he, he's going to face a lot of challenges, including uh, how to modernize the Tibetan the administration, central Tibetan administration's function. So huge challenges, yes. Indeed. Does a Tibetan living in Minnesota want the same thing as a Tibetan living in Dharamsala? Since uh, Tibetans uh, enjoy, based on exile charter, they can raise voices, different voices. They are among the Tibetans who are willing to pursue independence. But Tibetan people living in Minnesota or New York or Zurich or Brussels, Paris, still a majority of the people wanted to follow the, the path of his holiness. Majority of the Tibetans still believe and support the middleware approach uh, initially started by His Holiness Dalai Lama to resolve Sino-Tibet issue. 
one bit of news that just came up today or in the last 24 hours was a nice outreach from the Biden administration. I would think that's sort of a good omen going forward, some nice wind in the sails of the new administration there when they get that outreach. What, what do you think about that? I've been working for Radio Free Asia for 25 years, and there are often when certain presidents or high officials of U.S. government meets with the Solis, there are strong uh, statements like this. But on Panchen Lama, the disappeared Panchen Lama, who is going to be 32 years old, the, the statement made by Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department, whereby he says that they urged the Chinese government, People's Republic of China, to publicly make known the whereabouts of Panchen Lama, as well as expressing willingness to meet Panchen Lama in person. That's a really pressure there. So I think this is a novelty and a very strong support. Uh, Tibetans inside and outside Tibet will very much like it and will welcome it. Sikyong, for example, has thanked the State Department for coming up with such a strong statement. That is impressive in early days in both the Biden administration and we still don't even have the new administration in Dharamsala. So with that, I want to thank you for making time for us, Calden. Paul, thank you for having me again. Thanks to Calden and Paul for the lowdown on the election for Tibet's government in exile. I remember interviewing the outgoing head of that administration, Harvard scholar Lobson Sange, when he was first elected. It seems like the administration has matured since then, but there's been no traction in dialogue with Beijing. Indeed. China is that court where balls go to die, it seems. It does indeed. It's like if they do hit them back, they just direct them at someone's head or something so no one can respond. Or even throw the racket. Please join us again next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts can be found on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you have any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Paul Eckert with Radio Free Asia with Matt Pennington. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.